You're listening to Get Real KC with Jen and Eric. Kansas City's consumer-facing real estate podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Get Real KC, where we are teeming with a passion for all things real estate. I'm Eric Jurgensen. And I'm Jennifer Justice. And we're here to share with you today our third episode on the home buying journey from start to keys. This episode, making an offer. And one of the most important, Eric, because this is where the pen really hits the paper. All right. Well, or we, the computer click, as it may be these <laughs> days. We should probably warn our listeners that this podcast might go a little bit longer than most. There's a lot of information to cover in making an offer. Really, what we're going to be covering is, uh, among other things, a, a lot of information that needs to go into an actual contract and some of the choices and how they frequently can be interpreted or help you or potentially detract from a deal. So very important that you understand all these concepts, because particularly in our market in Kansas City now and for the last several years, actually, uh, lots of offers have to be made very, very quickly. So being prepared is, is, is a good thing. Yeah, with this being one of the largest financial decisions that a lot of people make, it's very stressful to begin with. And then let's add on top of that the fact that, number one, you may have to make an offer sight unseen. That's how quick the market moves. That's a possibility. And then number two, you look at the house and you need to be ready to write if it's your dream home. So, you know, back in the day, we used to have a day or two or sleep on it or something like that. And unfortunately, for a lot of buyers, that environment does not exist right now here in 2020. All right, so let's talk about it. We've gone through, we've seen a house. Hopefully, we've had an opportunity to see a house. We really, really enjoy the house. We're ready to make that offer. What? Uh, what's What's my first step? What are some of the tools I have? What Before I be we actually make the offer, we're going to want to check all the disclosures out that may come with this home. Sometimes sellers leave documents, you know, for buyers that are touring the home. So you flip through that. But you really want to review that seller's disclosure. You want to review any homeowners association documents to make sure that if uh, there is a homeowners association, they are things you can live with um, residing in that neighborhood. You want to review any utility information that's available to get averages and any warranty or repair documents that may be attached to that supplement. So that's the first step. Right. So a couple things to look for in your seller's disclosure, which I think is eight pages, eight or 12. I don't remember. I think it's an eight page document, the, the standardized one that most people use. One of the things to look for are um, exclusions. So in that document, a homeowner can suggest, hey, uh, I know that there is a problem with the grading in the backyard, and we're excluding that from uh, a, negoti a negotiation in the future. So important to know what this, that's essentially a seller saying, if you're making an offer, you've already accepted that this condition exists and that we're not going to fix it prior to sale. So look for those exclusions. Yeah, and we're seeing a lot of sellers sell as is right now because it's just an opportunity they have. So yeah, definitely happening. Uh, the next thing you want to do before you make an offer is make sure that your proof of funds or your mortgage letter is up to date. Because what you don't want to do in this environment is submit a mortgage letter or a proof of funds that isn't in line with what you're offering for the house. Because let's face it, you're having to up those offers more often than not. And so you may have been at 175 and you may need to move to 185 to get this house if that's something you're qualified for and you want to have your offer updated to reflect that. Right. So that 
letter is your pre-qualification letter from your mortgage lender or proof of funds, which is for cash buyers. Mm-hmm. Which could the, be their investment statement, could be their bank statement. You know, they're welcome to black out important information that they don't want to necessarily share account numbers or whatever, but, you know, needs to have their name, the proper amount, and want to make sure that those documents are in order. So then you're about ready to write the offer, but you want to do some considerations and talk it over with us as your trusted real estate professionals. What kind of earnest money are we going to offer on this house? So earnest money, money that essentially you're putting down saying, I'm very serious about this deal. And to do that, I'm going to take some money and set it in an account that none of us are going to touch. And typically title companies hold that, although it's not a requirement. Anybody um, in, in the state of Missouri, and I think Kansas as well, title companies, some brokerages can, uh, but it is regulated. They are regulated accounts, but it's essentially, I'm going to set money aside Nobody's going to touch it until the deal goes through. It's just me proving to you that I'm very serious about that. Yeah. You know, the thing I have seen an uptick in, though, is non-refundable earnest money. There are people putting themselves out there because they want this house. Either they've struggled, they've made six to ten offers. I'm making numbers up, but there are people missing out. You know, in this environment, you got to prepare to lose, unfortunately, because you are competing with so many buyers in this market. So your earnest money or promise to purchase, as I like to call it, can be refundable, can be non-refundable. And the amount needs to be, you know, I would suggest as much as you can possibly do and be comfortable with, because that is going to speak to a lot of sellers. Right. So those are the kind of the two things. One is how much money you're willing to put down should indicate to a seller how serious you are. Yep. And then if you're willing to make it non-refundable, that clearly indicates to a seller how serious you are. But if the deal falls through for a variety, any reason, then you're out that money. So that's that's... And, you know, so we haven't really talked about purchase price or offering price that we're going to be putting on this offer. Along with that earnest money, this is the same consideration. You need to be ready to offer a price on this home that you are willing to live with if you don't get it. So you need to have put your best foot forward and be comfortable saying, I made my best offer, what I was comfortable with, and I'm okay with it. If I don't get it, it wasn't meant to be. Right. And that's a great theory because or a great point, I should guess I should say, because there's a lot of homes in Kansas City now and over the last several years, and it looks like it's going to continue on for the foreseeable future, particularly in that, let's call it 175 to 285 range, uh, that multiple offers come into sellers. They get to pick and choose about what's important to them. And it's not like they go, it's not like we're doing an auction where they go, okay, I've got an offer for 210, who'll give me 215. Okay, now I've got an offer for 250. It's you put in a single final and best offer. So when you talk about, hey, make sure that you put in an offer that you're comfortable with that you, if you don't get the house, I mean, it goes without saying that you're comfortable with paying that amount for the house. But then if you don't get the house, you don't want to be in that position where you go, oh, I really wanted that house. I could have offered $3,000 more. So uh, it's a great point, something really sort of important to look at when you're in uh, home ranges that move very, very quickly. Well, and escalation clauses have become a thing, but I'll tell you what I've experienced with some sellers that makes them uncomfortable. And I know that agents are trying to do a great thing. So I'll just give you a for example. Uh, I had an agent put in uh, escalation clause of up to $256,000 on a home that was initially offered at two hundred and thirty. dollars and they didn't choose to go with that offer for a variety of reasons, but one was that their 
purchase price amount was much lower than someone else's purchase price amount, just point blank. And that to this, I've seen it more than once that the sellers just are like, hey, uh, well, this person offered me $10,000 more just on the line. You know, I like that better. And, you know, they may have put down more money or, or whatever the case may have been. But I know a lot of agents are using escalation clauses. I've used escalation clauses before as well. But you need to make sure that that backside number is realistic. Uh, I think sometimes agents get lofty with it or maybe even clients get lofty with it and the sellers then are a little wary of it. So they're starting out, they're saying, hey, look, I know you're offering the house for 230. I'm going to offer you 220, but I'm going to go up to 250. And that that initial number makes the seller a little bit queasy about it and they pass up the offer. Yeah. I've seen it happen just because that's the way they're, uh, you know, breaking it down. And I don't know that I feel that way personally, but I'm, this is the the real sellers, real clients, real buyers here that this is the way they feel. This is what we're seeing in the market. So the next thing we'll talk about is the inspection time frame. And what we're trying to do is kind of paint a picture for you as we're walking you through this lovely uh, contract. There there can be eight pages, 16 pages, 20 pages. I was uh, actually reached out to our sphere of real estate masterminds. And I asked, what is the longest home inspection that you've ever received back? What were the number of pages? 215 <laughs> is right now what uh, is on the thread. I think that's kind of ridiculous, quite frankly. But I want to give our people an idea of what to expect because this is a big deal. This is your picture into the house because inspectors are human and they are not foolproof. But your inspection is what's going to give you a picture into the home and what you're getting yourself into in this largest financial investment. So one of the things I recommend, and I have one actually for my own house that I keep, but if you're a first time buyer or haven't bought in a while and are unfamiliar with an inspection report, ask your agent for an inspection report, an actual inspection report on a different house. So what I do is I share one from my own house so I don't have any um, issues with sharing data. And I let my clients read through that so they know the kinds of things that they're going to get. And I actually looked this up. I can give our listeners a place to go. Um, NACHI.org is the National Association of Certified Home Inspectors. They had a pretty good sample form up that people can look at. And of course, we would love to provide you with one of our preferred inspectors. But, you know, this is another important piece is have you as a buyer interviewed inspectors? Have you looked at their work? Have you looked at their reviews? I mean, maybe you've picked somebody out, but this is a consideration in your home buying journey is to pick out a good inspector. Of course, we can give you several different choices that we've used in the past. And with the permission of, you know, blacking out some of the information, we can give you some examples of those if you'd like to see them and things that we're going to talk about. Um, But another piece of that inspection is the time frame that we're going to put on the contract of which we are going to do the inspection. So in Kansas City, our contract calls for 10 days for the inspection period. Well, as a default, it can be changed. As a default, right? So there's a little blank that says if this blank isn't filled in, this defaults to 10 days is what Eric's referring to there. Now, in this environment that we've told you is uber competitive, people are accepting homes as is. So you've gotta be cognizant. I think it's always a good idea for a buyer to have an inspection. There's always the possibility you could just say, look, I know I told you, and I had this happen uh, on the foreclosure, Eric, is that the buyer did accept the property as is, put $1,500 non-refundable down, and they decided to walk away. Luckily, somebody picked the house up the next day, Same thing, no problem, shared the inspection report with them, we're good to go. But 
you got to be ready for those kinds of things in this environment. So the shorter you can make that time frame, the better it's going to be to a seller. But you know, if you do say I need a house so bad, I'm willing to accept it as is you conduct inspections, you don't like it better to walk away from a small amount of money than bite off $200,000 or something you don't want to end up with. Right. I, I work with uh, a lot of first time buyers and I, I almost always recommend that they go ahead and keep their inspection period, even though it is a great negotiating tool, particularly people who have not are, are not particularly handy, haven't worked in their own homes growing up, that kind of stuff, uh, just as, as sort of a security blanket. So uh, that time frame is something that you do have to set in the contract and it is part of your negotiation strategy. And so. it can become very important because if somebody goes outside of that time frame, they're essentially waiving their option. You know, so that's right. really important. And timelines are really important in a contract. It's important for people that haven't been through this process before to realize that this is a legally binding contract. And that's why it's so important because you are agreeing to timeframes that must be followed. There are deadlines that must be followed or you waive certain rights. So. So after the inspection time frame, what's next? So what comes up next is additional items in the contract. So there's a couple little boxes in the contract where you can include or exclude items. And an example of a contract that I just got yesterday, the uh, buyer would like the refrigerator and the washer and dryer left for the convenience of the seller, as it was worded. And so that's a <laughs> place where you can put items. So uh, maybe there, you know, and, and I don't suggest putting in appliances usually on contracts. Lenders don't tend to like that. When it's worded for the convenience of the seller, yeah, they don't have to move it. So maybe the bank allows that. But I could also see the bank potentially saying they're going to remove it. It's a fine place to put it to start. You may just have to do addendums or amendments in the future on those. So um, any additional items and then home warranties come up. So buyers and sellers want home warranties. The thing I'm seeing a lot of right, you know, this last month is a lot of buyers are paying for their own home warranties. They know they want them, but they also know that that may make their offer less attractive to the seller. So they're saying, yep, here's my home warranty. I'll just pay for it and coordinate it myself. But it is something that you as a buyer can always ask for if you want to. It's option who pays for it. So home warranties, in, in my mind, fit a little bit into probably what our next big topic needs to be, which is closing costs. And that is, uh, from a buyer's perspective, it's really interesting because I, I think so many people miss the mark on, really, it's about net sale. So let's talk about closing costs. And uh, to kind of give everybody an idea of what you can do, there are a significant n number of closing costs that... Uh, are cash that a buyer has to bring to close. Some of those can be offset. You can say to the seller who's about to come into this big chunk of money, so they have cash, right? Say, hey, I'm going to offer you uh, $250,000 for this house, but I would like you to pay $5,000 of my closing costs. A buyer, some buyers think, well, that's a $250,000 offer. Technically it is, but it's a $245,000 offer net, right? And that's how a seller looks at it is you can call it 250 and I'll help you with your cash. That's great, but it's 245 to me because that's what I'm walking away with. And I think the uh, home warranties are very similar. Now they're typically not near as expensive. 600 dollars. $600 for a, a pretty average and decent home warranty, but it's still the same thing. If you ask a seller to pay for the home warranty, they just mentally subtract that, let's call it $600 off of the money they're getting. And so instead of offering them 250, you just offered them 249.4. 
Right. So that's a- And we'll get deeper into that home warranty conversation. I'm sure our listeners have a lot of questions about home warranties, but that's a topic for another day. Um, and diving into closing costs a little bit. So depending on the type of loan that you're getting, um, which we've covered a little bit about mortgages in some of our previous episodes, but those percentages can be restricted. And Eric's exactly right that this is a net, you know, and he said the seller's coming into a lot of money. Theoretically, hopefully the seller's coming into a lot of That's money. That's true. They may or may not have <laughs> the resources to help you out with their closing costs. They may be offering you their bottom dollar. Who knows? Um, you know, if we're representing the buyer, it's our job to ask and the seller's job to say no. Um, and if we're representing the seller, obviously it's our job to get the seller the most money in the least amount of time and meet their needs as as they need. But closing costs in this environment are uh, a little touchy because if you ask for them, you may be denting your offer a bit. And it's real important to understand that net to the seller. Yeah, I was about to ask that. Is there more consideration do sellers look at buyers asking for closing costs anything beyond that net change in price do do sellers look at someone saying well if they need me to buy their closing costs uh, they're not financially stable i did just have that exact thing happen because it was something the buyer needed um, to meet their down payment they needed the seller to help them with the closing costs to be able to meet their down payment requirement um, not an unusual circumstance right. especially for first-time home buyers oh not at all unusual but just again in this environment of competitiveness that did not speak to the seller well and their offer did not get chosen so i think what we can emphasize to buyers right now is cash is king save your money and be prepared because that actually the offer was higher and so we did go back and ask them if they could change their down payment to make the seller more comfortable or the other thing we asked for was could they waive their appraisal contingency because they did offer such a high amount on the back side well we see that you're offering that are you willing to waive your appraisal contingency because you're offering so much money that it may not appraise the answer was no, and no, their offer was not chosen. Sure. So we'll talk about that in in, in a minute. The Absolutely. appraisal contingencies. Um, On closing costs, real quick, I'll cover for the for the people out there that are not familiar. Look at your good faith estimate from your lender. So we've talked about that pre-qualification. We've gone over that in a podcast. And when you're looking at that good faith estimate, that's going to give you an idea of the closing costs and your cash to close, which if you are going to ask for closing costs, that's where you're going to get that basis from. All right. Before we move on to contingency, let's get like the three C's in a row here. Let's talk about closing date. Yes. So one of the things that uh, is important to do when you're trying to make your offer attractive, sometimes you are restricted by closing date. We'll talk about uh, contingencies here in a minute. But uh, if you're not, then ideally what you do is you go, hey, what is the buyer's uh, I'm sorry, what is the seller's best interest here? How can I make this attractive to them? Not everything in a contract is about money that's attractive to a seller. Yeah, you are so right. So does that particular seller just have weekends off? So, uh, you know, a Friday closing for them and then giving them the weekend to give the uh, buyer possession on a Monday morning or a Sunday night. You know, what is the attractive nature of the closing date for the buyers? Traditionally, you know, we're looking at 30 day closing dates, but you're exactly right, Eric, in this environment, that is a more important factor than it's ever been. Used to be that the buyer was in the driver's seat for telling you what closing date was good, bad, or indifferent. But now it's kind of switched gears to where, hey, we're checking with that seller to see what is best for that seller. Are you building a house? Do you need a rent back? Whatever. We want to make this attractive for you, Mr. Seller or Mrs. Seller, that we are complying with your closing date. So you need to know that your possession date 
in this environment is maybe not going to be your closing date because that's part of that attractiveness of the offer is giving that seller the opportunity to have some extra time to clean the house for you and to get their possessions out and then give you possession 48, 72, whatever you guys come to an agreement on later. What's important, I think, to recognize when we talk about closing and possession is to understand the differences. When you close, when you go to a title company and sign all of your papers and you close, money gets transferred, does not necessarily mean that that's the exact same time that you get the house. That can be negotiated separately. And sometimes it's a lot better to say, hey, look, we're going to go ahead and close you seller can have this money because we know you need it to be able to buy your next house. Maybe you've got a contingency sale, which we're about to talk about. I'm going to go ahead and give you an extra three days to get out of the house. That is a huge, uh, offer for people who are selling homes and buying new ones and moving. Yep. And if you have the ability to do that, you're coming from an apartment whose lease is not up. Maybe you're living uh, at, at, in, a, in a family Mom home, right? Mom whatever. and dad's, whatever it is. And you can offer that. that that's huge. And that's worth a lot of money to a lot of sellers. So yeah, that, because they don't have to move twice. They don't have to get the pods. They don't have to rent a storage unit. There's lots of positives to that. So yeah, that's a real game changer for a lot of offers is if somebody can give them a little time or is comfortable with that. Um, and like you said, you were lucky in your uh, situation where you were able to get possession early. That's not normally the case. People do not like to do that. There's a lot of liability issues surrounding possession early, but sometimes it happens. So just depends on the situation. So we're going to move on to contingency, but before we talk about contingency in terms of another home involved in it, let's talk about what you mentioned earlier, which was the appraisal contingencies. So if I offer above list, or even if I offer list theoretically, but if I offer above list, which is pretty common in a certain segment of homes in Kansas City, and then the appraisal comes in, right? the appraisal may be lower than the amount of money that I'm offering. So, Possible, and, and it does happen. So you had mentioned earlier this is a negotiation tool. Let's, uh, and we're going to talk about appraisals in the our next podcast. We're going to talk about appraisals and inspections in depth. There are some recourses you have or potentially have, depending on how the contract is written. But one of the things you can do is say, regardless of how the appraisal comes in, I'm still going to buy this house. And if you do that, that's a very, very strong negotiating tool for an offer that's high. Yeah, as long as you have the capital to do it and you know that you really want this house, it's a fine position to be in if you have it because you need a house to live in and... Uh, kind of at the point you're able to do that and get the house and close on it. What I have seen most recently is people putting limits on it, though. I'm willing to pay up to $5,000 over whatever it is if the appraisal does not come in or 10000 or, you know, I'll, I don't see a lot of just blanket waiving the appraisal contingency. That gets a little bit dangerous, I think. But this is, a, I mean, in a cash offer, obviously they're pretty much doing that consistently. Um, people are not getting appraisals on cash because they want the house come heck or high water. They want it. So it's happening. All right. So contingency, though, also typically means at a contract level, right, that your offer is contingent upon the sale of your current house. It, it could be actually contingent upon many different things. And those the boxes that we can check is this home is contingent on the sale of another home or this home is not contingent. Of course, you could write in an additional terms and conditions, your other um, issues. But do you have a home to sell? 
You know, is your home on the market already? Has your home already been through inspections? These are some of the boxes to check on the contingency form that you inform the seller. Look, I am contingent, but my contingency is solid because all I'm waiting to do is close on my house and then I'll get you your money or I'll remove my uh, contingency after my inspections or after my appraisal is complete. There's lots of different options with that. Obviously, a contingency is going to weaken your offer some because it does have a domino effect. If your house doesn't close, you can't close on this other house. So there are some risks there for all parties involved, uh, emotionally and financially, obviously, because once you get the ink on that paper, you're pretty much excited about being ready to go. And then you do have some dominoes and things to make happen at a particular order. But yes, the uh, offer being contingent is a consideration and definitely check boxes on our contract. All right. So we've got a lot of things, but there's still several more to talk about. So if I'm a seller and you're making an offer on my home and you're going to get a loan to do that, it's reasonable for me to examine information about your ability to actually buy my home, right? Absolutely. And some of that can impact how me as I as a seller feel about your offer. Yes, definitely. You can definitely do that. So financing terms are something that we look at. Down payments, definitely something we look at. All of these things go into the overall equation of how good is my offer to the seller, right? Because we, we're going to look at the overall picture and determine who we think as a buyer is going to perform on this contract of all these promises they're making. Sure. And if I'm looking at somebody who's getting a loan, but it's a conventional loan and they're putting 20% down, I'm going to feel much more comfortable about their financial situation than a, a 3% uh, or even a 0% VA loan or an FHA, uh, et cetera. It doesn't mean that those are bad products. It just means that if I'm comparing apples to apples, I might take... There's different risk with each product, right. different levels of um, how they're done, different levels of you know, who conducts an appraisal, all of those different things. And obviously, the buyer that has a higher down payment has the ability, because they have more cash in hand, to potentially bridge that appraisal gap if it exists. And that's a real consideration to a seller in this market with with everything's going on. So another item on the financial front is that explanation of taxes that comes in um, and the proration of taxes, which is covered in the contract. And what we're talking about, in if you close in the middle of the year in June, the seller has already used part of that money uh, for the taxes, and the buyer will be using the last part of it. And so those prorations and those credits will be taken into account at closing, and that's covered in the contract as well that that happens. Right. We talked about some of that when we talked about financing home and closing costs in our previous podcast. Bingo. So we, we've we've talked about a lot of topics so far about making offers. We've talked about making sure that you review your disclosures, um, a little bit about um, the impact of getting a mortgage versus being a cash buyer, certainly about earnest money, something that you can control, uh, inspection timeframes you can control, exclusions and inclusions, home warranties, closing costs. All of these things are choices that you as a buyer are making when you're making an offer on a home, some of which obviously are limited based on your financial capabilities, but some are um, other things like uh, possession versus close, which depending on your particular situation, you might be able to be flexible and make an offer more attractive. Contingencies, financial terms, the sort of the last thing that you have to decide on this offer is how long is this offer going to be good for? You don't put an offer out there and say, oh, and tell me sometime in the next three weeks, because then you're legally bound to uh, 
honor that offer for weeks at a time. And typically when you're looking for a house, you don't want to be locked up for weeks at a time waiting on somebody to make a decision. Right. Unfortunately, when we used to have a lot of HUD foreclosures, you had to leave it pretty open ended. But in this day and time, we do want to put how long is our offer good for? Because if another home comes on the market tomorrow that we love more than this home that we're making an offer on, we don't want to have ourselves bound to this offer indefinitely. A lot of strategy goes into this particular decision because by creating an offer that has a very short time frame, you can oh, encourage, I was about to say force, <laughs> you can encourage the sellers to make a decision quickly so that maybe they're not looking at a lot of competitive offers. The you can try. Last, last week uh, with one of my buying clients, we made an offer on a home. They... The home was on the market for two and a half days. We made an offer on day one, but they said they were going to keep open for two and a half days. The uh, The seller sifted through 20 offers, 20 offers in two and a half days, the first two and a half days. Incredibly competitive market. Now, they announced early on that we were going to uh, you had to make your expiration this day or we wouldn't consider the offer. Sometimes that happens. But sometimes when that doesn't happen, people will come in with a very strong offer very early and say, you've got 12 hours or 10 hours or six hours to make this decision. Yeah. And they just make that clear on the front end that that's how they're doing it so that they, you know, there, there is a little bit of strategy involved. So. Right. So another thing that you need to be looking at as, as part of putting your offer through that's sort of making offers in a nutshell very quickly, you know, in 25 minutes or so. Uh, a couple of things that are going to happen afterwards, uh, right? There's. We're going to, after we've gotten through this period here, um, we are going to actually order our inspections. Then we're going to order our appraisals schedule a walkthrough after we've completed all of these complicated steps and we're going to schedule our closing date which may or may not be the same date that we have put into uh, the actual thing there depending on our possession times etc and once we sign we're going to take about an hour to sign documents although maybe that's going to be changing with our e-notary here I don't know how long an e-notary closing is going to take uh, and then hopefully we are getting some keys unlocking the door to our new dream home so there you have it. Very quick, very fast run through of all the decisions that you need to make when you're making an offer on your dream home. Join us next time. We're going to be talking in detail about inspections and appraisals. Until then. You have been listening to Get Real KC with Eric Jurgensen and Jen Justice. For more information or to contact our hosts, Visit us at dreamhomesbygen.com, where you can find more episodes exploring real estate as it matters to you.